You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is Lecture 10, given in Dornach on the 9th of June, 1923, entitled Spirit and Non-Spirit in Painting, Titian's Ascension of Mary. Today I should like to add something more to the lectures I have given here over the past few days. In earlier lectures I have often spoken of the genius of language. And you know from my book titled Theosophy that when we speak of spiritual beings in an anthroposophical context, real spiritual beings are meant. And that also what we mean by the genius of language is a real spiritual being of the various different languages, which a person lives his way into and which, as it were, sends him the power from spiritual worlds to express his thoughts, which are there in him, during his earth existence, in the first instance as a dead heritage of the spiritual world. Therefore it will be quite appropriate, particularly in an anthroposophical context, to look at some of the ways in which language is formed and search there for the kind of meaning which comes from spiritual worlds and which actually comes into being, to a certain extent, independently of man. I have also pointed out to you the extraordinary way we describe the actual artistic element, the element of beauty and its opposite. We speak of beauty, and in the various languages we speak of the opposite of this as ugliness. Haslich, the root has, means hate. If we were to use exactly the same kind of word for beauty as we do for ugliness, we should have to say something like loveliness, instead of beauty, as the opposite of hate is love. We should have to say loveliness and ugliness. Yet we say beauty and ugliness, making from out of the genius of language a significant difference between the one thing and its opposite. Beauty, taking it now in the German, is connected with the word appearance, or something bright and shining. And you should look for something similar in other languages. Parenthesis, sheen has the same root as both the English shine and the German schön. Close parenthesis. A thing of beauty comes to appearance or shines forth, that is, it shows its inner nature on the surface. This is the character of beauty. That it does not hide away but presents its inner nature in outer form. Thus, beautiful is when the inner qualities are revealed externally, and appearance is where something shines forth, revealing the being within. If we wanted to speak in this way of the opposite of beautiful, we should have to speak of things which hide away and do not make their appearance, which withhold their real being, and do not show what they are in their outer covering. 
Thus we speak of something objective when we say beautiful. If we wanted to speak just as objectively of the opposite of beautiful, we should have to use a word meaning hiding itself away, appearing different from what it is. But what we do is we become subjective instead of objective and describe our relationship to what is hiding and find that we cannot love what conceals itself but have to hate it. Therefore, that which does not show us its real face is the opposite of beautiful. We do not designate it from the same level of our being, though, but from out of our emotions. We say that it is fit to be hated because it hides and does not show itself. When we listen to language in this way, the genius of the language can tell us its secrets. And we must ask ourselves, quote, what is it we are actually striving for in art when we seek to achieve beauty, close quote? Beauty in its widest sense, of course. What are we actually trying to achieve? Through the very fact that the genius of the language gets us to choose a word for beautiful that takes us beyond ourselves, we do not get go beyond beautiful, excuse me, we do not go beyond ourselves for the opposite, but stay in our emotions, in hatred. Through the very fact of having to go beyond ourselves, we indicate that beauty has a relationship to the spiritual element outside and beyond us. For what is it that makes its appearance? What we see with our senses does not need to appear to us, for that is simply there. What appears to us and shines forth in the sense world, revealing its being there, is the spiritual element. So, when we speak of beauty objectively, we are thinking of artistic beauty all the time as something spiritual that is revealed by art. Art has the obligation to really understand this appearance, this shining forth, this revelation of the spirit pervading the world. All genuine art seeks the spirit. Even when art wishes to present what is ugly and repulsive, as can well be the case, it does not want to present sensual ugliness, but the spiritual element which is announced excuse me, which is announcing its presences in the sensual ugliness. Ugliness can be turned to beauty when the spirit shines through this ugliness. But it is imperative that this relationship to the spirit is there if a work of art is to be beautiful. Now let us look at a particular form of art from this point of view. For instance, painting. During the last two days, we have considered painting insofar as it is a revelation through the understanding of color, of spiritual essence. One can say that in those particular times when people had a real inner knowledge of color, they knew the proper way to leave it to the genius of language to bring color into a relationship with the world. If you go back to olden times, in which there was an instinctive, clairvoyant knowledge of these things, you will find that there were, for instance, metals that were experienced as revealing their inner quality through their color, yet they were not given earthly names. There is a connection between the naming of the metals and the planets, because, if I may express it like this, 
they would have been ashamed to call what came to expression through the color by a purely earthly name. They looked on color as a divine spiritual entity that just lent itself to earthly things in the sense I described a few days ago. In the gold of their gold pigment they saw not only something earthly, but the sun declaring itself from out of the cosmos. Thus even when they saw color attached to an earthly object, their primal experience was of something reaching beyond the earth. When it came to living things, these they accredited with having their own colors, as living things come closer to the spirit and spirit has its own radiance. And they experienced animals as having their own colors, because in them a soul-spiritual element makes a direct appearance. We can, however, go back to even more ancient times, when people's experience of art was inward and not outward. Actually, there was no painting then at all. To paint a tree green, to paint a tree, it is almost stupid, isn't it, to talk about painting a tree, to paint a tree and use green paint is not art. Because whatever you achieve in copying nature, it will not have as much beauty and substance as nature itself. Nature is always more alive. We have no cause to imitate nature around us, nor does a real artist do that. A real artist uses the object, say, to paint the sun shining on it, or to observe a particular color reflex in its environment in order to catch the interplay of light and dark. The object one paints is merely that which gives one the opportunity to do this. People never paint the flower in front of their window. They paint the light shining in through the window as seen through the flower. People actually paint the colored light of the sun. They capture that. And the flower is just the occasion for capturing that light. When we approach the human being, we can do this in an even more spiritual way. It is no art to take the human brow and paint it like a human brow, or as one thinks a human brow looks. There is no sense in that. The task of the artist is to capture with a brush and color the way a human brow catches the falling sunbeams, where a softer light appears beside the brightness, the play of light and dark. In fact, to capture everything for which the subject affords him the opportunity and relate the fleeting moment to the spiritual element. If you have artistic sensibility then, when you look at a picture of, let us say, an interior, it is not a matter of looking at the person who may be kneeling at the altar. I once went to an exhibition with someone, and in the exhibition we saw somebody kneeling before an altar. One saw him from behind. The artist had set himself the task of capturing the sunlight coming in through a window and the way it fell on the person's back. Well, the man who came to see the picture with me said, quote, I would prefer to see that person from the front, close quote. But that was only taking an interest in the subject matter and not the art, wasn't it? He wished the artist had shown what sort of person it was and so on. But you only have a justification in doing that if you want to show what can be perceived by means of color. 
if I want to represent a person on his sickbed suffering from a particular illness, and I study his complexion so that the illness appears visibly in the flesh, that can be artistic. Also, if I want to represent, say, in totality, how far the whole cosmos comes to expression in the human complexion, that can also be artistic. But if I imitate the way Mr. Robinson sits there in front of me, firstly, I shall not succeed, and secondly, it is not an artistic proposition. Artistic aspects are how the sun is shining on him, how the light is deflected by his bushy eyebrows. In fact, it depends on the effect of the environment on my subject. And my means of achieving this are light and dark, color and catching a fleeting moment, which I am justified in doing in the way I described yesterday. People had a real feeling for this in an age not even so remote from ours, and they could not imagine painting Mary, the mother of God, without giving her a transfigured countenance, that is, a face so glorified by light that it lifted her above the ordinary human level. They could not imagine her in any other way than in a red dress with a blue cloak, because only in a red dress, which shows all earthly emotions, and a blue cloak showing the soul surrounding her with spirit, and with a face transfigured by the spirit revealed in the glorifying light, could she appear properly in earthly life. But this is not fully artistic as long as we only feel it in the way I have just described it. I gave you an inartistic version, so to speak. You feel it in an artistic way the moment you create with red and with blue and with light, experiencing, as you do so, that the relationship of the light to the colors and to the darkness is a world in itself so that all you actually have is color. And color tells one so much that the colors themselves and the play of light and dark create the Virgin Mary. To do this, you would have to know how to live with color, of course. Color must be something you live with. Color must mean for you something that has become emancipated from matter and weight. For Heavy matter actually puts up a resistance to color when you want to use it for art. It is therefore contrary to painting altogether to paint with palette colors. These always show a certain heaviness when one has them on the canvas. One cannot live with palette colors either. One can only live with liquid colors. And in the life a person shares with color, when he has it in liquid form, in the unique relationship he has with it, when he puts liquid color onto the paper, color comes to life, and the world comes to life through color. A real art of painting arises when one grasps the nature of appearance, of revelation, of raying forth as a living factor, and makes use of this living revelation for what one is forming on the paper. A world will grow out of it by itself. For if you understand color, you understand a world ingredient. Kant once said, quote, Give me some physical substance and I will make you a world. Close quote. Well, you could have given him a great deal of physical matter, but I can assure you he would not have made a world out of it. 
for a world cannot be created out of substance. You would more readily create a world with the mobile tools of color. You could create a world out of those, because every color has its own direct personal relationship to one of the world's particular spiritual elements. At the present time, except for the primitive beginnings being made in Impressionism, and especially in Expressionism, and they are really only beginnings, materialism is so widespread that people no longer know how to paint, nor what to think of painting. For on the whole, people do not paint nowadays. They copy figures by means of a kind of drawing, and then cover the surface with paint. But those are painted surfaces, not paintings, created out of the element of color and light and dark. However, you must not misunderstand this. If somebody goes wild and simply plasters the colors on one beside another, that is not at all what I mean by overcoming drawing. When I speak of overcoming drawing, I do not mean having no drawing at all, but creating the drawing out of the color. And the color will surely produce the drawing if you know how to live in the color. This sharing of the life of color can then lead the real artist to disregard the rest of the world and create his works of art out of the element of color. You can, for example, go back to Titian's title, Ascension of Mary. There you have a work of art which consists of the old art principle, Run Riot. A living experience of color such as we find in Raphael or especially in Leonardo is no longer there, but there still exists a kind of tradition. Therefore he does not depart too strongly from an experience of sharing the life of the color. Have a good look at Titian's Ascension of Mary. You could say that the green is gaudy, and so is the red and the blue, but just look at the details. If you look at the way the various colors speak to one another, you have the feeling that Titian lived in color and that in this picture he creates all three worlds from out of the color. Just look at the wonderful progression from one world to another. Down below are the apostles who experience the event of Mary's ascension. Just look and see how he creates them out of color. You see by the color that they are bound to the earth, yet one does not feel that the colors are heavy. One only feels how dark the colors are in the lower part of Titian's picture. And this darkness conveys the impression of the earth-boundness of the apostles. In the whole way he had handled Mary's coloring, one experiences the intermediate realm. She is still connected with the earth below. Look at the picture again, if you have the opportunity, and see how the colors of the darkness spreading out below are repeated in the coloring of Mary, but how the light is victorious how the top realm, the third realm, irradiates and lifts up Mary's head, while the color still holds her legs and feet in bondage. As God the Father receives Mary into heaven, watch how the colors are graduated with real inner feeling through the lower realm, the intermediate realm and the realm of the heavenly heights. You could say that to understand this picture, you actually have to forget everything else and look at the whole thing purely from the aspect of color. For the three levels of the world have been created out of color, not intellectually, but absolutely artistically. 
You could also say that it is really essential to the art of painting to portray this world of shining appearance, of shining revelation, in light and dark and color, in order to bring out the artistic aspect of the material realm of earth, and yet not let it reach the spiritual level. For if one were to let it reach the spiritual level, it would no longer be appearance, it would be wisdom. But wisdom is no longer artistic. Wisdom would raise it to the unformed realm of the gods. One would like to say, therefore, that with a real artist like Titian, who portrays something like the title Ascension of Mary, you have the feeling at the top, when you look at Mary being received by God the Father, or rather Mary's head being received, that one should not go any further with the use of light. It has reached the very limit. The moment you begin to go further, you succumb to intellectualism, which means you are inartistic. You must not let you must not go one stroke further with what is being indicated by light and not by the contour. For the moment you go too strongly into the contour, it becomes intellectual, inartistic. Toward the top, there is in fact the danger of the picture becoming inartistic. After Titian's time. Artists rapidly succumbed to this danger. Look at the angels up to the time of Titian. When we ascend to heavenly regions, we reach the angels, don't we? See how careful artists were to remain in the realm of color. In pre-Titian times, and possibly to a certain extent with Titian too, you can still wonder whether the angels might not be clouds. If you are not left in any doubt about the difference between being and appearance, but arrive at real spiritual beings, it ceases to be artistic. When we come to the 17th century, there is an immediate change. Materialism then affected even the portrayal of spiritual beings. You will see a whole host of angels painted as the result of training and not art, appearing in all possible foreshortened attitudes, so that you could not possibly mistake them for clouds. Mental reflection is already at work there, and that is where it stops being art. Now we have a look at the apostles down below again, and you do indeed have the feeling that in the whole of the ascension of Mary, only Mary is artistic. At the top of the picture approaches the danger of passing into the realm of unadulterated wisdom, which is without form. Yet if one succeeds in staying in this realm and remaining formless, that is, from one aspect, the ultimate in art, because it is art at its most daring, venturing to the very brink where art ceases to be art, the light blurs the colors, and where, if one wanted to go any further, one could only begin to draw. But drawing is not painting. So at the top we approach the realm of wisdom, And the greater the artist, the more wisdom he will bring into the sense realm, the more chance there will be that the angels he paints to choose a concrete expression can still be called banks of cloud shimmering in the light. However, if you start at the bottom of the picture and pass up through the beautiful part of it, the figure of Mary herself, who is actually rising up into the realm of wisdom, there Titian has the chance to paint her beautifully because she is still in the process of rising. 
Judging by what it looks like, one has the feeling that if she were to rise a little higher, she would have to enter the realm of wisdom. Then art would have nothing more to say. But if we go a bit further down, we come to the apostles. And I told you with regard to them that the artist was trying to use color to portray the apostles' earthboundness. But now he comes into the opposite danger. If he had put Mary a little further down, he would not have portrayed her sustained by her own inner beauty. For if Mary were sitting down there among the apostles, one would not see the reason for that. Neither would she be able to look as she looks when she is between heaven and earth. She could not look at all like that. For the apostles are down there in their brownish coloring, and Mary would not fit in. For we cannot actually remain at the point where the apostles have earthly heaviness. Something else must come into it. And what happens is that the element of drawing is strongly introduced. You can really see in this picture of Titian's that the drawing element sets in strongly. Why is that? With the use of brown, which actually leaves the realm of color, one cannot portray beauty as it is done in the figure of Mary. One has to portray something which does not quite come into the category of beauty. And it has to be beautiful through the fact that something other than what is actually beautiful is being revealed. You see, if Mary were sitting or standing among the apostles in the same coloring as they, it would actually be offensive, terribly offensive. I am only speaking of this particular picture and am not saying that whenever Mary is standing on the ground she is bound to be artistically offensive. In this picture, however, it would be like a smack in the face for anyone looking at it from the point of view of art if Mary were to be standing down there. Why is that? You see, if she stood down there in the apostles' coloring, one would have to say that she had been portrayed as virtuous. That is how he portrays the apostles. We cannot escape the impression that the apostles act out of virtue. But we cannot speak like that about Mary. Her virtue is such an obvious fact that it does not do to express it. It would be be like portraying God as virtuous. Where something is so obvious that it is its very existence, it does not do to portray it in its outer appearance. So Mary has to soar up and enter a realm where she is beyond virtue where one cannot describe her coloring as being virtuous, just as little as one can say of God himself that he is virtuous. He can at most be virtue itself, but that is an abstraction and enters the realm of philosophy. That has nothing to do with art. But with regard to the apostles down below, we have to say that the artist has succeeded in portraying them as virtuous people purely through the use of color itself you see their virtue. Let us try and approach the matter once more by way of the genius of language. Virtue. What does being virtuous actually mean? It means being suitable for virtue. German Tugend is connected with the word Taugen, to be suited or fit for. See virtuoso, translator. To be fit for something means to be a match for it to be capable of it. And this is what being virtuous means, though it ultimately depends in what sense one is using it. Goethe portraying it in this way speaks of a trinity, wisdom, 
appearance and power, the latter meaning virtue in this sense. Appearance equals beauty, art. Wisdom equals that which becomes knowledge, formless knowledge. Virtue, power equals that which is really qualified and capable, the existence of which has meaning. This trinity has been much respected for long ages. I could well understand it when someone told me some years ago that he was sick of hearing people talking about truth, beauty, and goodness. For anyone who wants to trump up an idealistic expression mentions truth, beauty, and goodness. Yet we can point to past ages when people experienced these things with their whole hearts. So we can look at the art and beauty in Titian's picture in this way and see wisdom above, but significantly enough, not wisdom only, but wisdom in its appearance as art, as painting, beauty in the center, and virtue below in the sense of qualification. We are now justified in inquiring a little further into the inner nature of what being qualified means. If we follow up these things, the genius of language shows us how deep the soul of language is which works creatively in human beings. If we were to look at it purely superficially, we might recall the story of the hunchback who heard a church sermon in which the preacher gave his congregation a lot of trite expressions about how good, beautiful, and purposeful everything was in the world. The hunchback waited at the church door and asked the preacher as he came out, Since you say that everyone in the world is good in principle, is my form a good one? To which the preacher replied, you have a good, a very good form for a hunchback. Close quote. Well, if you look at things as superficially as this, you will not reach the depths. And things are considered just as superficially as this in innumerable realms nowadays. People are full of such superficial definitions that they do not realize how they themselves go round in circles. Virtue does not mean being capable of one thing or another but of being capable spiritually of confirming as human beings the existence of the spiritual worlds. A virtuous person in the proper sense is a person who is fully human, not only because he reveals the spirit, but because he brings the spirit to realization through his will. However, although this area is still human and touches on the religious element, it is no longer in the domain of art least of all in the domain of beauty. The whole world is constructed on the basis of polar opposites. So we can say superficially of this Titian picture, quote, at the top he runs the risk of leaving the realm of beauty when he goes beyond Mary. He is at the other brink, close quote. For as soon as we portray virtue, which is the spirit a human being has to bring to realization through his own being, we depart from the realm of beauty and are no longer artistic. If we want to paint an actual virtuous person, we are only justified in doing so if we make a characterization of virtue in outer appearance in some way, possibly contrasting it with vice. But an artistic portrayal of virtue is actually not art, and in our time it is a departure from the artistic altogether. But where, in our time, 
do we not see a departure from art? When life conditions are simply copied in a crude, naturalistic way, without there really being any relation to the spirit. Without a relation to the spirit, there can be no art. That is why in our time people are trying, through Impressionism and Expressionism, to get back to the spirit again. Even though these attempts are frequently clumsy and elementary, at least they are more significant than what is being done from models in such a crudely naturalistic and inartistic way. If you form your concept of art and beauty on this basis, you will also be able to accommodate tragedy, the artistic impact of the whole element of tragedy. A person who lets his thoughts rule him and runs his life in an intellectual manner can never be tragic, and a person who is completely virtuous can actually never be tragic either. A person can become tragic if he has a tendency to inspiration, daimon, which means to the spirit. An individual begins to be tragic to the extent that a daimon works in him, either for good or ill. In present times, we are in the age where human beings are becoming free. Therefore, nowadays, an inspired person is an anachronism. That is the whole significance of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, that human beings are changing from being inspired to being free. To the extent that a person becomes free, however, the possibility of tragedy ceases, so to speak. If you look at the tragic figures of old, even most of Shakespeare's tragic figures, there you have the inner workings of the daimon, which lead to tragedy. Wherever a person is the outer expression of a daimon spirit, wherever a daimon spirit shines and reveals itself through him, and man is, as it were, the medium for the daimon, there is the possibility of tragedy. Tragedy in this sense will more or less have to cease, for liberated mankind must become free of the daimon. As yet this has not happened. Mankind is succumbing to it more than ever. Yet the great task and mission of the present age is that mankind shall break away from the daimon and become free. But when we get rid of the inner daimons, the figures that turn us into tragic personalities, it is all the harder to get rid of the outer daimons, for the very moment the human being comes into relation with the outer world, a spiritual, daimonic relationship arises, even in the case of modern man. Our thoughts must become more and more free, and if, as I have portrayed in my title Philosophy of Freedom, thoughts become the impulses of will, willing will also become free. Those are the polar opposites which can become free, free thoughts and free will. But between these two is the rest of the human being, and this is connected with karma. Just as the spirit of a daimon once led to tragedy, now for modern mankind it will be the experience of karma, in particular, that can lead him into the most tremendous inner tragedy. Tragedy will not flourish, however, until human beings experience karma. As long as we confine ourselves to our thoughts, we can be free. When we clad our thoughts in words, the words no longer belong to us. What a lot of things can happen to a word I have spoken. It is, it is taken up by someone else. He associates it with other emotions and feelings. The word continues to live. 
As the word passes through present-day humanity, it becomes a force, although it took its start from a certain human being. That is his karma, which connects him with the world and which can backfire on him again. And the word can indeed lead to tragedy, because it belongs to the genius of language and not to us, and therefore leads its own existence. That is just what is happening today, that mankind is heading for tragic situations because they overestimate language, overestimate the word. Nations form themselves according to language because that is how they want it. That has the makings of a colossal tragedy which will break over the earth within this century. That is the tragedy of karma. Just as we can speak of the tragedy of olden times as the tragedy connected with the daimon, so we must speak of future times as the tragedy connected with karma. Art is eternal, yet its forms change. And if you realize that art always has a relation to the spirit, you will understand that both in creating it and appreciating it, art is something through which one enters the spiritual world. If one is a real artist, one can paint a picture in seclusion. The real artist does not mind who sees the picture or whether anyone sees it at all, for he has done his creation in different company, in the company of divine spirit beings. Gods were looking over his shoulder. He created his picture in the company of gods. What does it matter to a genuine artist whether anyone admires his picture or not? This is the reason why one can be an artist in total solitude. Yet one cannot be an artist without giving one's own creation an objective existence so that it lives in the world which is also considered from a spiritual point of view. The creation to which one gives objective life must be alive in the spiritual atmosphere of the world. If one forgets this spiritual relationship, art goes through a transformation and changes more or less into non-art. You see, people can only be creative artists if their works of art are related to the world. A consciousness of this was alive in those artists of old who, for instance, painted their pictures on the walls of churches, for those pictures were the guides for the faithful, and the artists knew that they were part of earth existence, insofar as earth existence contained a spiritual element. One can hardly imagine anything more terrible than painting for exhibitions instead of for something like this. Basically, it is the most ghastly thing to go through an exhibition of paintings or sculpture and see things put, as, put side by side that have no connection whatsoever. When the art of painting changed from murals for churches and houses to the painting of pictures, it thereby lost its proper significance. If you paint a frame, you can at least still imagine you are looking out of a window, and what you are looking at is out there, yet it is no longer anything. But even painting for exhibitions, one cannot talk about it. An age that sees a point in having exhibitions has lost its connection with art. That is enough to show you how much progress will have to be made in the cultivation of the spirit before we have found our way back to art on the spiritual level. For one thing, exhibitions will have to be surmounted. Some artists certainly have an aversion to exhibitions, but nowadays we are living in an age when individuals cannot achieve much unless individual judgment is steeped in a world outlook which fills a person's being, but now in complete freedom 
in the way in which people were permeated by their world outlook in ages less free, when it led to the growth of real culture. Nowadays we do not have any real culture. A spiritual world outlook must have the greatest interest in working to establish real culture and real art. The end of Lecture 10